walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Hey everybody, welcome back to the Camino Podcast. I'm Dave Whitson, this is episode 24, and we're going to talk about completing the journey today. It's been a while since I was back on the microphone here, about a month now, and I confess that I've continued to have my own challenges with completing the journey. It's been two months since I've been home now, and a month into the school year, so the transition back into this rhythm, this routine, is a challenging one. And, you know, it's a funny thing. As I mentioned before, there are some years when I get home and I'm immediately clicked right back into life at home, and then others where it's more of a struggle, like it's a it's a Camino jet lag that clings for weeks and weeks. And, you know, there's I think two different angles to this. One is the just transition, the re-entry. How do you reestablish the old rhythm or or try to craft a new rhythm when you finally return home? But there's also the question of how do you bring back the things that you've learned on the Camino? How do you integrate those into your life at home in a way that all of those positive lessons are sustained and made a lasting part of you, not something that exists only on vacation, but is a central part of your being, of of how you operate, what you do on a day-to-day basis. And the question of just how feasible, how possible that even is, how do you get about that point? One of the things that's interesting to me is, is the idea that pilgrims today don't actually finish their journey in the same way that pilgrims of old would have. Pilgrims of old, of course, would walk to Santiago, and that would be the midpoint, and you'd turn around and you'd walk home. And a guest on a previous episode, Brian Boldria, a professor at Northwestern, talked about how, in his mind, we tell stories. There's this proliferation of pilgrim stories, in part because that's how we we walk home, that we are, are telling our way home through our stories, and that offers a way to complete the experience. Of course, there are more literal ways of doing this as well, and the first guest today, Jen Hoffman, did exactly that. She's from the U.S., so she couldn't, you know, walk all the way home. But she did, on her second journey on the Camino, start where she finished in Finisterre, and then walked back to Santiago, back through Galicia, the Meseta, and all the way back to Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, where her starting point this time became her end point. And in our conversation, Jen talks about what that process was like, what it's meant to her, and how it has offered her a sense of completion. A lot of times we talk about a sense of closure, but I don't really think that's what we're striving for. I think it's more along the lines of completion. And uh, in so doing, I, I think by completing the one, we then have the capacity to fully integrate it, reflect upon it, and and build upon it in a way that we might not if it were unfinished, unresolved. It's not to say, of course, that anything is any previous experiences totally closed off and put behind us. 
but I believe that when we when we don't finish things to a sense of completion, there's a there's a nagging question that holds over us in a way that uh, something that has been fully completed brought to its natural end doesn't. And and I think Jen's experience speaks to that. The second guest today has nothing to do with that. Some some episodes of this podcast have a very nice, clean, thematic hook that brings together the different conversations. This one does not. The second conversation involves bedbugs. Uh, everyone is terrified of bedbugs, or at least a lot of pilgrims are, and I feel like there's a ton of misinformation circulating, some of which I have offered myself just based off of what I've heard from pilgrims picked up along the way. And so I wanted to speak with an expert about this and find out firsthand what we should do to keep ourselves protected from bed bugs or to deal with it if we are exposed to an infestation in an albergue. And uh, so I spoke with Mike Potter, Dr. Mike Potter at University of Kentucky, who is a bed bug expert about what we should do. And his answers are revealing and they challenge some of the prevailing wisdom that exists among pilgrims on how to deal with bed bugs. So stay tuned for that. I think you'll find it really helpful. So that's the plan. I'm going to talk to Jen about completing the journey, about walking back from Finisterre and Santiago. And then we'll talk with Mike about bed bugs. Thanks for listening. Once again, hoping to get back on this horse. Episode 24. Stay tuned. Jen Hoffman is from Salem, Oregon, and she uh, recently walked the Camino in reverse, and I'm excited to talk to her about that. Thanks for joining me, Jen. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So tell me, what inspired your decision to walk a reverse Camino, starting in Finisterre and then going all the way back to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port? I think a lot of people feel this sort of compelling urge to go, and it doesn't have a a name per se. Some people call it a calling, some people feel compelled to go, (laughs) or it just, the Camino kind of grabs you by the throat and says, you will go, (laughs) whether you were eager or not. And I I went three years ago in 2013 and walked from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port all the way to Finisterre, Mm -hmm. and I thought I was done. I thought 500 miles was plenty. It's sort of like that song, I will walk 500 miles while I walk 500 more. (laughs) (laughs) And it just it kept occurring. It was time to go back. It was time to um, kind of, I kept thinking about ancient pilgrims Hmm. and how when they walked out of their front door and to the local cathedral and then walked all the way to Santiago or to the ocean, that wasn't the end. That was the middle. Mm -hmm. And my Camino was really significant, that first one. And I kept thinking it didn't feel complete somehow. And I know a lot of pilgrims struggle with that. Like, I feel like I need to go back and do it again. Mm-hmm. And somehow I put the, I need to do it again together with the, what ancient pilgrims did. And I thought, oh, the reason why I need to go back is because I didn't finish. Mm. In other words, it was time for me to start at the end and go back to the beginning. So this was a, a pursuit of completion. Yeah, I think I didn't know that when I started out, but the more I thought about it, the more I discerned and the more I... Well, you know, I initially resisted the idea of walking another 500 miles, mm-hmm. but it it was. It became this, I want to know what it's like to walk the whole way, the way that ancient pilgrims did. Yeah. 
you know, when we talk about pilgrimage, we talk about the pilgrimage to something, a pilgrimage yes. to Santiago. Um, did you still feel like this was a pilgrimage? And was it a pilgrimage to something? Was it a pilgrimage coming mm. back from? What was it? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I thought a lot about when I did the Camino the first time, what did I think of St. James? Mm-hmm. You know, what did I know about him? And, you know, he's portrayed in a lot of different ways. And I had to sort of reconcile the more violent mm-hmm. portrayal of him. Um, and so I thought a lot about what does this mean to start in Finisterre and do kind of a mini pilgrimage to Santiago, to St. James, and then finish going back to saint jean pied And so I, before I left, I thought a lot about focusing on walking myself home. And, of course, I live in the Pacific Northwest, so mm-hmm. it's more figurative. But I retraced my path. So I went through Dublin the first time, so I flew back through Dublin. And hmm. I went to the same airport, so I kind of tried to replicate the journey to do it in, re- in reverse. And as soon as I started walking, and especially on the hard days, I would think, okay, I'm not just walking on the Camino, I'm walking myself home. Hmm. And that really became my focus. And every day I got a little more excited to be home. And I can, I can say for a hundred percent certainty that I did not feel that way on my first Camino. As I was walking to Finisterre, I really was dreading going home. And so this time I really felt excited to go home and it really felt like a completion. Hmm. And obviously those thoughts would intes- intensify as you got closer to home. I'm wondering, yes. it, it must have felt surreal or weird when you walked out of Finisterre or walked out of the Prazador Bordoro in, in Santiago and mm-hmm. were essentially swimming upstream that your that the the ending is was now a beginning and it was a starting right. point. You were heading out in the morning. Like what 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 was that like for you? It was wild, especially at first. It's actually really cool. In in Mushia and Finisterre and Santiago, it's really common for pilgrims to walk kind of almost a circle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are fairly clear markings in blue going in the reverse direction. So I was walking out of Finisterre in the morning, and the first thing I did was get confused and turned around, and I couldn't <laughs> find my way, even though I'd been there before. I, and everyone said before I left, oh, you're going to have no trouble. You'll find your way. You've been there before. And that did not <laughs> it did not prove to be my memory is just not that great. Yeah. But um, But it was. It was a bit surreal to leave Finisterre and like I said, essentially taking a, a pilgrimage to Santiago from Finisterra, but the arrows were at least easier to follow. But I'll tell you, leaving Santiago was probably the most confusing, <laughs> long stretch. And I didn't start to meet pilgrims for a good hour because mm. I left in the, uh, pretty early in the morning and everyone's leaving from, you know, a few towns back or Monte de Gozo. And so I didn't really have any any pilgrims to see up ahead of me to, to find my way. Mm-hmm. So I got very lost. And again, I'd walked through it before, but I was so excited about arriving, I didn't pay any attention to the scenery. <laughs> so going back in reverse, it was. It was very strange. Did the navigation get easier as you got farther from Santiago? Yeah, I developed some strategies. I didn't expect to... I, I, I really didn't know what to expect. And I will be the first to admit that I'm not... I'm a bit of a perfectionist in real life, and I don't like making mistakes. I don't like doing things wrong. I don't like having to do things over. And boy, was this <laughs> pilgrimage a crash course in humility. Like, yes, you will do it wrong, and yes, you will get lost, and yes, you'll get turned around. Um, so that was, <laughs> you know, I could laugh on it now. At the time, it was frustrating, especially mm-hmm. if it was raining and I was walking out of my way in the wrong direction, that sort of thing. 
But I did find that it got easier because I got better at looking for signs. Mm -hmm. The arrows weren't always useful, although people, you know, said to me very helpfully, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's just a head, just follow the arrows. I'm like, no, no, it doesn't work (laughs) that way in reverse. But um, I got good at noticing which tracks, which um, paths, if there were two to choose from, which one looked better trodden, Mm -hmm. you know, which had more of the grass flattened or which had, you know, I would look for stick holes in the mud if there was nobody around. Mm. Um, I would get, I got better and better about asking for help, which is another life lesson that was great to, to come across and come, come face to face with day after day. And I also got better at asking for, pil- you know, asking pilgrims for directions and its suggestions on where to stay in albergues. But the thing that helped me most was being, especially from, um, Santiago, back in the direction through Galicia, there are so many pilgrims on the Camino that I could look ahead in the distance and see someone wearing a backpack and know exactly where I needed to go. Mm-hmm. But there were days where I was completely lost, and even though I was standing on the Camino, I was lost. <laughs> <laughs> I think lost is more a state of mind than it is a physical place. <laughs> Which must have been baffling to pilgrims when they would run into you hearing that you, oh, you yes. were lost on the Camino. Um, uh, Speaking of pilgrims, I'm thinking that you must have never seen another pilgrim more than once. Is that accurate? Um, Actually, there were a few funny circumstances where I would run into people that I had seen before. So in, I went to Samos, which is a monastery, uh, not on the direct Camino Frances, it's an alternate route. Mm -hmm. And there was a, the hospitalero there was a volunteer, and he had two days left in his two-week or three-week volunteer stint there. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to see you again, because I'm walking the Camino Frances, I'm starting in, I think he started in Pamplona or in uh, Saint-Jean, and he said, I will see you again. I thought, oh, yeah, sure, you know, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Well, sure enough, in the middle of nowhere, in a little plaza before dawn, uh, this guy came up to me, and I looked, at, I looked at his face, and he saw me, and we immediately recognized each other. So <laughs> that happened a few times. There was somebody else. I'm trying to remember. Hmm. Uh, it didn't happen often. Yeah. One of the funny things, though, was that I was a rarity among pilgrims. There yeah. were very few people walking in reverse. But as I walked through Galicia, I kept hearing the story about two young women walking with a little black dog. <laughs> and they were a bit of a mystery to me because I had not seen them, but everyone in front, you know, all the pilgrims coming toward me had already encountered these two young women. Um, and eventually in Pamplona, I actually met them. <laughs> <laughs> I finally caught up to them, yeah. and I, it was just standing around looking at some of the historic, um, the, the walls around Pamplona, sure. standing around looking at them, and there were these two girls there with backpacks and scallop shells and a little black dog, and I thought, are you by any chance walking the Camino backwards? And they <laughs> said, yes, do I know you? you know? Um, so that was, that was really fun to actually meet someone I, we didn't met before, but they were, to me, were kind of famous, so right. <laughs> Camino famous. Um, the other thing that was really cool is that I'm a member of a group called Camigas, which is a Facebook um, community for women walking the Camino. And I put a note out a month before I left that I would be walking in reverse. And if, you know, I, would, I, I said there would probably be a likelihood that I would be looking for connection or friendship and a hug or two or, a, you know, a <laughs> selfie or something. And uh, I met no less than 13 women from that group while I walked the Camino. Wow. So some of them I had, you know, exchanged um, comments in the past or had interacted with in that Facebook group. 
but many, very often it was someone I'd never met before, never seen before, but they had heard that I was walking backwards. So someone would say, are you Jennifer? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do I know you? So it was, that was really sweet to meet people. I, I love the community of the Camino. Yeah. So I didn't feel lonely. You didn't feel lonely. Even though, well, like, even in all of those cases, you saw those people once, maybe twice, and, and otherwise, yes. every night you're meeting new people, yes. forming these very temporary connections. Yes. That, there were times where I, I really didn't, you're right, I mean, I didn't have a Camino family to walk with, which yeah. was definitely one of my favorite parts of my Camino in 2013. I have people that I met that I'll be in touch with forever. Um, however... It was really a different Camino this time. I knew that I wouldn't... It was neat because there were times where the next town that I... You know, I was leaving from a town going east, and ever, all the pilgrims that were going west were, you know, a good, a fair distance away. So if mm-hmm. I left early in the morning, I was sometimes had the Camino to myself. Yeah. And I wasn't following anyone. Uh, but what I found really meaningful was to stay at small, privately owned albergues that had a... a um, communal dinner in the evening. Mm-hmm. So even if I did, obviously I encountered a lot of people, but the connection wasn't very deep. But in the evening, when I would stay with a group, there'd be that bonding, the deep connection, and the, the com- deep conversation. Hardly anybody knows what anyone does for a living when you walk <laughs> the Camino, but talk about the things that really matter. So there were there were times in the morning where I didn't want to leave my new Camino family that I'd made the night before at dinner. Mm-hmm. And that was a really sweet experience. One of the other things that I did before I left, because I was aware that I wouldn't meet people for very long or have the opportunity to have long conversations or have a Camino family, I made little tiny cards that had an inspiring quote or hmm. a question because I thought, well, I'd love to, to walk with them for a few miles and share stories, mm-hmm. but because I couldn't, if I met someone that I would have loved to have that kind of conversation with, I would let them choose a quote or a card, a question at random. And then as soon as they walked away, I would invite them to read that question or that quote and ponder what it meant. So it was my way of going with them. Hmm. That's really nice. It just hit me that, you know, for most people walking the Camino Frances, especially in the summer, mm-hmm. there's this sense that it is just this constant stream of humanity, right? That mm-hmm that you are you are, you always have people around you but i imagine your perception of it is different it's almost like encountering waves and then like peaks and then valleys is that mm-hmm. more what it was like yeah i had i had heard the idea when i was walking the traditional way towards santiago <laughs> that there were waves of pilgrims but walking east and against the flow the, uh, a spanish man called it el camino del salmon the camino of the salmon you know walking <laughs> the opposite way I really did experience waves where there were some days where I'd see almost 300 people in one day, and then there were some days where I met maybe, I don't know, a few dozen. So there really were distinct waves that I would cross through. Hmm. The other thing I'm thinking about is the fact that when you were walking through Galicia, you mm-hmm. were surrounded by pilgrims who were really close to the end, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I imagine we're, we're getting pretty excited, and you know, also that little bit of, I, I don't know, melancholiness. But but they, yeah. they they very much 
felt the end coming and you were just at yeah. the beginning of your walk and and later as you were you know close to home you were with uh pilgrims who were still so far from santiago so how yes. did how did that impact your experience that was a real that's a great question it was really interesting um when I, i'm the kind of person who loves deep connection, loves to talk about really deep, meaningful subjects, spirituality, heart, life, you know, meaning, (laughs) purpose, all this stuff. And my favorite people that I met on this Camino were the ones that I met in Finisterre and in in Santiago, because they were really reflective, Mm. very, very in tune, you know, very much under the influence of the Camino. The Camino really does do something to us internally and externally, for sure, if you look at people's feet. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I found that it was a little odd to be starting my Camino in Finisterre and having everyone else ending theirs. And the same thing in Santiago. Or, or it was really fun, you know, in the evenings at dinners in Alber- these small albergues, people would say, well, where did you walk from today? And I would tell them. <laughs> and you could see the it didn't compute on their faces, like, what? what? Wait, what? <laughs> what? Are you going backwards? Yes, I am actually going backwards. Um, I've totally lost the train of thought on your question. Oh, what was it like? Yeah. The weirdest part was going from Roncesvalles back to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. Yeah. That was wild, because I was seeing myself in their faces. Every single pilgrim whose path I crossed, I was seeing myself, the doubt, Mm. can I make it over this hill, the fear, the uncertainty, the joy, the excitement, you know, it was really wild, and this is what I had hoped would happen, was to re-encounter who I had been three years ago when I started on this journey without any certainty that I could complete it. And it was really humbling, and I had a lot of respect for these pilgrims who were so out of their league, physically, emotionally, mentally, um, embarking on a journey. And they, they were, I would say, um, probably the least interested in hearing about someone who had just completed a return journey. You know, because they were just embarking on their own. I did not take that personally at all. Yeah. But I was, I found that the further along the Camino people get, the more reflective and open they are. But at the very beginning, we are so concerned with, you know, they say the Camino is in thirds. The, the first third is for the body, the second third is for the mind, and the last third is for your, for your spirit. Mm-hmm. And I was definitely, you know, from Roncesvalles, or really Pamplona to, to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, for me, I was encountering people who are very much preoccupied with their physical well-being, their safety, their feet, the path, could they find it, were they okay, what was normal, all of the other, what kind of food do I eat? So they were, I didn't engage as much with those folks, mm-hmm. but as it turned out, I made um, some plans to reunite with two women that I met on my first Camino. Mm-hmm. One is from southern France, and one is from Colombia. So Maricela and Muriel met me in Pamplona, <laughs> and we walked together back to Saint-Jean. And that was really lovely. So it wasn't just me confusing everyone going the <laughs> quote-unquote wrong way. It was three, the three yeah. amigas confusing everyone that was <laughs> walking their Camino. So that was actually really sweet. So I had this wonderful connection with these friends from my first Camino 
in addition to encountering these pilgrims who are brand new. Yeah, and and just so full of anxiety. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a gut check going up over those mountains. Ooh. <laughs> Um, uh, along with that walk, I'm wondering if any other places on the Camino felt radically different when you approached them from the West. I imagine some towns or some cities just feel really differently when the, the entry point um, is a different one. Yes. I would say what stands out most for me was Santiago. Hmm. Um, when you come into Santiago as a pilgrim arriving for the first time going west, uh, you know, if you've walked all 500 miles, you get to Santiago, and you, it's a very strange approach to the cathedral. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people comment on this, how you're sort of coming around from behind the cathedral, mm-hmm. and then you walk along the cathedral, and you go through the tunnel, and then you come out into the plaza. And it's, it's not quite anticlimactic, but it's a little odd to be so close to the cathedral, and you can <laughs> sort of see the spires. When you are walking the Camino in reverse, especially from Finisterra, you're not, it's not quite long enough to get a Compostela, by the way. It's only about 90 kilometers. It's mm-hmm. not quite far <laughs> enough to get one. Um, you are coming up a hill. And when you get to the top of this rise, the, the cathedral is directly in front of you. It's a great view. It's a really it's great incredible. view. It's incredible. It's incredible. And I have to say, not only was it a great view, because it was, and it was a really... Uh, it was how I imagined it would be the first time. Mm-hmm. It was also really powerful for me because my life changed dramatically after the Camino. I made some major, major changes in almost every single area of my life. And it felt like in some ways I finished the Camino. You know, I got to, to Santiago and I got to Finisterra and then I went home. And as they say, the real Camino starts when you get home or when mm-hmm. you leave Santiago. Um, and I had some major decisions to make. And so in some ways, I continued walking in my life. And it felt like I had been walking the whole time. And I, then I finally got back to Finisterra, and I started walking towards Santiago. And so when I came up that rise and I saw the cathedral, it felt like I had been walking for three years. Hmm. And it was a really emotional homecoming in a way, because that was really the place where my life started to change for the better, and I got clear about what was important. I, By the way, <laughs> this is probably significant, I walked my first Camino in to celebrate my 40th birthday, and, you know, it's a, I had a, the typical midlife, you know, full-on crisis <laughs> after the Camino, so it was really powerful to go back to that place and see it anew, and also having walked, symbolically walked, and made so many changes in my life. Mm-hmm. I was very emotional. Is your pilgrimage complete now? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I should know better than to say that, because then you get another one. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but really, it, it you really, feel that. Yeah, I do. I remember arriving in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port on foot with my two friends, and I thought a lot about who Saint-Jean was, who is Saint, Saint-Jean, and it turns out that St. John, which is St. Jean-Pied-de-Port, mm-hmm. is named both after St. John the Baptist and um, St. John the Evangelist, the one that wrote the, one of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And so it's named after two St. Johns. So you can kind of choose, because you walk to St. <laughs> James. And I thought a lot about, well, who were those guys and, and what were they about? So it was, you asked me earlier, what were you walking to? And to me, it was a little curiosity about, well, who were those characters and what do they mean to me? 
I haven't gotten a lot of clarity. I think there's more journaling to do about that. But um, arriving back there and going to the same pastry shops and knowing that I was a different person, knowing that my life had changed a lot, was really profound. Yeah, you said at the I, beginning that when you were walking over the Pyrenees that you you could see the you from three years ago at the beginning. Yeah. Yes. So how, who are you now as a result of the walking? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that my life is a lot simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first things I did, and I know a lot of pilgrims do this, is they go home and they start clearing out your clo- their closet. <laughs> I definitely purged, and I purged and I purged, and I got rid of stuff, and we had a garage sale, and it felt like I eventually took a turn where it wasn't about purging physical things. It was about really getting clear about how I spend my days and my time and with whom. Um, And that was pretty difficult to take a good hard look at, you know, is it really worth spending yet another hour on Facebook? (laughs) Is that really what what I'm here for? And um, I ended up closing my business in the three hours that elapsed between my two Caminos, and I started a new one. Um, and I'm also working on a memoir about the changes that came out of my life um, after the Camino. So it's a lot of things got simpler and clearer because I realized on the Camino that uh, I glimpsed how happy I could be. It's a very personal revelation here, mm-hmm. but I realized how simple life could be and how satisfying that was. Hmm. And contrasted with the life I had been living before, there was a lot of junk, mm. a lot of activity that wasn't really satisfying, and it took a lot of courage to start removing those things and then finding space to create the things that were nourishing and joy-filled. And, you know, not every day is like walking the Camino. <laughs> you don't get a cafe con leche every half an hour or so. <laughs> <laughs> but I do find that my life is simpler, and making saying no is easier, asking for help is easier. And connecting with other people in a really meaningful way, you know, I used to say, well, I don't want to impose on anybody or, you know, I would kind of keep myself small. And now I don't feel apologetic about asking people about what's really real, you know, what's present in their heart, because that's the stuff that really interests me anyway. Hmm. Is this something that you would recommend that all pilgrims do or consider to complete the journey to return Hmm. back to the starting point? I think... I wouldn't say yes or no with certainty because I think everybody's journey is their own. Mm-hmm. I, did, I do think that many people walk the Camino and they finish and they have this unease that they don't know what to do with. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people go back and they do a different Camino or they do the Camino Frances again. And I think that's a really worthwhile journey, so I don't have any judgment about it. But I think that for some people, they do the Camino and... It opens something in them, and they don't know how to integrate it into their everyday life. Mm. And if that's, I think for people who are struggling, like, what do I do with what happened for me on the Camino, or how do I live that every day? Walking in a reverse can be a really great thing, especially coupled with journaling. I'm a big journaler, so Mm -hmm. reflection is kind of innate (laughs) for me, but I think Walking it in reverse gives you an opportunity to reflect on who you were before mm. and what you've, what the, you know, the path you've traveled and who you met and what they taught you and what you learned on those hard days. And there were days where 
like Osobrero, for example, was a really um, significant place for me on my first Camino. I had some really big insights. And of course, it's a beautiful place, mm-hmm. just the scenery from there. But walking it backwards, I got to Osobrero, and it was like the, the town had no time for me. Hmm. You know, all the shops were closed. The restaurant didn't want to serve me breakfast that I was <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> and, and it was almost like it chewed me up and spit me back out again. Like, okay, get on your way. This isn't your town now. Yeah. And I think that that was really instrumental in like, okay, focus on going home. Focus on where you're going next. Hmm. Don't get stuck. Yes. Well said. Yeah. Where can people find your writing, Jen? I am writing at jenscaminojourney.com, and that's Jen with one N. Mm-hmm. I'm writing about my backwards Camino. I'm taking it one day at a time and writing kind of a story about each day. I did that on my first Camino as well. But I'm writing reflectively. So I didn't write while I was walking. I'm writing after the fact. Mm-hmm. And I hope to be publishing a memoir next year. That's my, that's my hope. So if people sign up for the blog, they can uh, read more about when that's coming. Um, I also wanted to mention, this is sort of a time-sensitive detail, so mm-hmm. I don't know if it's relevant or not, but <laughs> in Salem... On September 6th, I'll be giving a talk in Salem at Salem Summit Company, which is a locally owned business that um, sells sporting good equipment. Okay. I'll be talking about my Camino. It's called Camino, a journey for a body, mind, and spirit. And I'll be giving the same talk in October in Las Vegas and Henderson at REI. Nice. Yeah. Thanks very much for talking with me, Jen. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Michael Potter is a professor of entomology at University of Kentucky, and he joins me to talk about one of the most dreaded things for pilgrims on the Camino de Santiago, bedbugs. Thanks for joining me, Mike. Thanks, David. Uh, pleasure to be here. It's, uh, it's great to talk with you. And uh, yeah, as I was saying to you before we started, uh, pilgrims, many of them are terrified of ever encountering a bedbug. So I think you know, more information is always a good thing to help you prepare. So I think this will be useful. Well, uh, I'll do what I can. It's a <laughs> bit of a challenging problem, uh, especially for folks that are in your group here. But uh, but we can definitely give them some good tips, I think. Awesome. Let's just start with the most basic question. What is a bed bug? Well, it's a, a small uh, blood-feeding uh, parasite. <laughs> <laughs> already got everybody depressed but yep. it's a you know uh they're 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 sort of uh the adult bed bugs are kind of brownish about the size of a tick if that makes uh, sense to a lot of your folks mm-hmm. that are listening uh the younger bed bugs are quite a bit smaller than that but um these things feed exclusively on the blood of of warm-blooded animals and that's usually humans almost exclusively humans um and uh you know they live in dwellings, uh, you know, especially beds, but, you know, anywhere where people reside. So, um, you know, and of course, this isn't just a problem for your pilgrims. I mean, you can pick up bed bugs on a city bus, you know, in the library, uh, of course, in your home or apartment, uh, just about anywhere where people reside or, you know, hang out, uh, you can potentially have issues, and of course, in hotels and hostels and things like that as well. So people should just be generally terrified. 
Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> is there they're, they're they're called bed bugs? Is there something about beds that is particularly uh, attractive to them, other than the fact well, that humans have to be there every day? Well, um, first of all, because they feed on on blood and uh, you know on humans, and they they almost always not always, but 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 typically bite people at night while they're sleeping and they tend to want to be close to where the sleeping person is, you know, the bed is definitely number one. But, you know, in, in homes and apartments, if people sleep in recliners or couches, you know, we'll find them in those seating areas as well. But definitely for the purposes of your group, uh, beds is, is definitely the hot spot. Mm-hmm. How, how bad is it to be bitten by a bed bug or to face... Um, a bed bug infestation. Well, you know, hey, there's worse things in life than bed bugs, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that a lot of your travelers, you know, will face other challenges on on you know, on their pilgrimages. But, but I mean, that said, I mean, this is a pretty disconcerting problem. It's a little bit different than, say, mosquitoes, which you know bite you outside and you can come indoors to escape them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, bed bugs, you know, bite you at night while you're sleeping. The bite is painless. You know, they scurry away. Yeah, you don't you don't know you're being bitten. They itch like crazy and people that react. So, you know, it's it's it, it, it's 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 a pain in the butt, you know, for for a lot of people that have been bitten. Um it's a different problem when you get these things in your own home because then you got to live with it and eradicate it. In the case of, you know, encountering it when you travel, it's just, you know, the annoyance of sheesh, you know, um, am I going to get bit here and uh, or did I get bit? Mm-hmm. Um there is one good thing about these critters is you know, based on everything we know at this point, it's exceedingly unlikely that they transmit any kind of diseases. Mm-hmm. So unlike, you know, mosquitoes and ticks, which can sometimes do that, um, that's not really a concern with bed bugs. It's mainly just the the, the, the itchiness of the bites and the and the anxiety, you know, <laughs> of, like, am I going to get bit tonight? And it doesn't itch for everyone, is that right? Like, I, I think mosquitoes generally itch for, for everyone, but my sense from having encountered some people with bed bugs is that they, is that for some, there's, there's, nothing more than the annoyance of the bite that's correct i mean i mean even with mosquitoes you know some people you know you know i'll get bit by a mosquito and uh, you know might itch for you know half hour an hour or whatever my my wife or my daughter get bit by a mosquito and itches for you know a week <laughs> uh so everyone varies in how they react to you know bug bites and these you know, other types of irritations but that is absolutely true what you said um in the case of bed bugs a percentage of the population and from some of the studies we've done in apartments it's been as much as you know 30 percent or higher you know one out of three people they're being bitten they just don't show any reaction to the bite which you know on the one hand you might say that's a good thing but um, it depends on the circumstances. You know, it's not a good thing if you're living in an apartment building because you know then people are these infestations are building and building and nobody knows about it. Mm-hmm. But um, but it is certainly true that some people don't react to the bites. The other thing, and this has does have some relevance to your um, listeners. Uh, sometimes you will respond, you know, within hours of the bite with a reaction. 
reaction, but in some cases the reaction is delayed mm. as much as a day, two days, three days, four days, or mm. sometimes even more after the bite. So you might have gotten bit, you know, 50 miles back on the trail Ooh. and not started to have the reaction, you know, till two or three days later. So it sometimes it's a little hard to know exactly where, you know, all this occurred, which... I don't know, might have some relevance to your folks or yeah. perhaps not. Yeah, it's a problem. I mean, in part because you're potentially spreading them in the meantime <laughs> to new places. Is there anything, a possibility, yeah. Is there anything distinctive about bed bug bites? Like I wake up in the morning, I see some bites on my arm. Is there any way to know if it's coming from a bed bug or just some of the other assorted things that can bite in the night? Well, you can, you know, there, there there can be some suspicions, but it's very, very difficult. Um, is sort of the bottom line. I mean, certainly, if you're if you're, uh, you know, hiking in the summertime or at times of the year when things like mosquitoes and ticks are active, uh, particularly mosquitoes, um, it's almost impossible to distinguish um, the itchy red bite of a bed bug from some of these other things, um, mosquitoes, lice, and so forth. Um, that said, you know, based on the pattern of the bites, like, uh, you know, and there's a lot of misunderstandings about this stuff. Like on the Internet, you'll read stuff about bed bugs bite in lines, you know, like in threes. breakfast, lunch, and dinner in yep. threes. Eh, sometimes yes, and many times no. Um, that pattern typically occurs because as you're lying on a surface like a mattress, the bugs will line up against the juncture of where your arm or your face or your body is on the bed, and they'll kind of feed along that edge. Oh. That's what sometimes will create that that linear pattern. But that's not always the case. I mean, oftentimes the bites are sort of here and there. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess I would just say that in general. If you went to bed and you didn't have any bites and you you know know you weren't getting hammered by mosquitoes that particular day outside where you know you were seeing the mosquitoes biting you and you wake up you know the next day or you're traveling the next day and you go oh my goodness I'm itching all over and I've got and it just doesn't you know correspond with what happened the night or so before that's sort of suspicious. Mm -hmm. um, because I mean, there are there's a lot of different things that can cause irritations that look like bed bug bites. Some of which have you know nothing to do with bugs at all. You know, some people react to you know perfumes and, and deodorants, and and you know you get into some poison ivy or you know some other type of irritant. But um, it is kind of suspicious when you start picking up these itchy welts, you know, on your face and your neck and your you know torso and particularly hmm. places that were kind of covered. Uh, during, you know, um, the daytime or whatever. So, obviously, if you see the bugs, you know that's that's really the most definitive indication that we're dealing with bed bugs. But you kind of sort of have to use your judgment and sort of think in terms of like, does this seem to not make sense that these are just mosquito bites? Right. If I'm a pilgrim getting ready to go. Um, what are some things that I could do in advance that might improve my chances uh, so that I don't get bed bugs? Or even while I'm walking, are there things that I could do to improve my odds? Sure. 
Um, first of all, this is not a problem, you know, on the on the trek itself. I mean, this is a, bed bugs don't live outdoors like mm-hmm. you know ticks and mosquitoes, so it's an, an indoor problem. And you're, you know, you could pick them up, you know, sitting in a booth in a restaurant or on a bus, but but that's way way less likely than you know where you sleep for the night. So I guess you know one thing that. I would absolutely do, and this is not difficult, is to sort of learn, you know, what bed bugs look like and what the signs of bed bugs are. There's all kind of pictures on the internet. We have a, um, an article that I can refer you to later that has pictures of all this stuff because um, the telltale signs of the bed bugs are either, you know, the bugs themselves, which are these little brownish or tannish little crawly movie, you know, things about the size of a. I don't know, a sesame seed, a poppy seed up to the size of a tick with the adults, or the little black speckly spots that you see typically on the seams and edges of the mattress and the box spring, Hmm. Um, if there is one. um, That's the digested blood, basically bed bug poop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... You know where I'm going with this is you know what the signs, you know, what what a bed bug looks like and what its its sign, the signs of it are, and then do a very uh, cursory check of your bed before you turn in for the night. I mean, those are probably the two easiest things that people can do that could potentially save them from a bad encounter. It, get, it gets a little more complicated than that because um, my understanding is many of the places that you're listeners stay have lots and lots of beds Mm -hmm. so so you know you could do this this very thorough check of your own bed and there could be bed bugs in you know an adjacent bed somewhere because these bugs do move Mm -hmm. um unless you kind of you know uh, i mean obviously if you had the ability or if you were traveling with multiple travelers everybody could kind of check their beds um and kind of you know create sort of a zone of you know saying (laughs) well everything looks okay in this area but it would be, you know, a very unfortunate thing if you did a thorough check of your bed and the bed next to you was, you know, teeming with bed bugs because there's a decent chance that they're going to end up moving over to you as well. It's a possibility of that. Some people talk about spraying your sleeping bag with permethrin or other essential oils. Is that helpful? Probably not. Um, the, the problem with this bug is it's, it, well, first of all, when we talk about repellents, like skin repellents for mosquitoes, you know, they're, they're very effective, mm-hmm. um, whether you're using uh, DEET or permethrin or one of the essential oils like, uh, um, you know, eucalyptus oil or, or uh, citrus oil. I mean, there's various types of products. The, the DEET products are certainly the most effective, and there's some other ones called picaridin for mosquitoes. But in the case of bed bugs... The, bu- the bugs bite, first of all, wherever there's exposed skin. They, they can't really bite uh, with any, you know, success, degree of success through fabrics. Hmm. But the idea of, like, slathering yourself with insect repellent, you know, every night when you go to sleep is, you know, it's not that it's exceedingly dangerous, but it's probably just not a prudent practice. Hmm. But But maybe even more important than that, I mean, these bugs are pretty pernicious. Um, We've done a little bit of work showing that even when you spray your skin with, you know, one of these repellent materials, the bugs, if they're hungry, will will crawl on and feed anyway. 
Wow. So there's intense desire for them to want to take a blood meal. And, I mean, the bottom line is skin repellents are probably not of much value in, in protecting yourself against bed bugs while you're sleeping. And the idea of, like, spraying your sleeping bag, I mean, you know, they'll just crawl around. They'll find some place you didn't spray. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll crawl on your hair and they'll crawl down to your face or... <laughs> I mean, the- theoretically, you could entomb yourself, you know, in a in in a mummy bag or a, you know or something, but you would literally have to be completely inside. And um, I'm not sure too many people like to sleep that way, <laughs> you know, trying to physically exclude. Um, but but the bugs will bite, you know, where the skin is exposed. So um, you just have to kind of take that into consideration. Of I mean, the bottom line is there's especially in the kind of places where your listeners sleep, it's going to be challenging to, like, be 100% certain that you're not going to get bitten by a bed bug. But there are a few other things that we can talk about that that could be of some use. Like what specifically? Well, again, like, first of all, most important thing, do a a check of the bed. And the the, the way I always do these things when I travel, and, you know, it just depends on how you know, how much time you want to take and how, 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 you know, anal you want to be about this. <laughs> um, uh, uh, the bed, but the, the, probably the, the most likely place to look, uh, that would you know, give you the biggest indication quickly would be up around the, the, the pillow area or the head of the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, bed bugs tend to be drawn to carbon dioxide. So as you're sleeping, um, that, you know, that's really a hot area up by the, the corners and the, the top, portion of the mattress. So I would definitely do a look along the seams and the edges. And I've got some pictures on our website um, that show how this would be done and what you'd be looking for. Looking for the little tiny bugs themselves or the little black speckly spots on the fecal material that they leave behind. And then if you want to, you know, take some more time, just literally go around the entire, you know, perimeter of the mattress looking at the upper and lower seam uh, in particular. The bugs love to be you know, up against edges, you know, mm. sometimes we'll see them in, you know, other areas of the mattress, but sometimes around the mattress label, for example, but, but especially those seams of the mattress. Um, so that's the most important thing. Uh, and we can get to like, you know, what do you do if you find them? I mean, the obvious thing is like run, you know, hike <laughs> another 15 miles and find another place. But, um, you know, in a hotel room, what we would say is, well, get yourself another room, mm-hmm. preferably one that's not, you know, not immediately adjacent to that room. But, you know, so that's not an option in many of these places, right. since there's many beds in the same room. But as far as some other things that could be done, because you know, one issue is like, you know, am I going to get bit tonight? Another issue is, am I going to bring these bugs with me mm-hmm. on my travels? And um, the thing that I always worry about is leaving your stuff like backpacks, like clothing sort of sh- sh- thrown about on the floor, or maybe there's a vacant, I don't know if there's ever any vacant beds in these places, but if there's a mm-hmm. vacant bed, I, I would not, I would be inclined not to do that because what happens is when the lights go out late at night, while everybody's sleeping, the bugs become active and start crawling around. They they have sort of a, a circadian rhythm where they learn that, you know, the best time to feed is late at night when people are sleeping. So um, basically, bed bugs do a lot of wandering around. Hmm. And, you know, if you've got your 
you know, your clothing and your, you know, an extra blanket or your backpack laying open, laying on the floor or laying on another bed, you know, there's a, that's the way bed bugs get transported, you know, back mm. to either your home or onto your next location. So, um, you know, simple things. I don't know if any of these would apply. It may vary from place to place, but, you know, zipping up your backpack mm-hmm. uh, rather than leaving everything open. Uh, hanging it on a hook if there is such a thing, mm-hmm. um, elevating it off the floor if there's any kind of a hard surface. I mean, bed bugs basically, they don't much care to hang out on like hard table tops and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, the, the worst thing would be to lay them on another bed or leave everything zipped, you know, uh, you know wide open with everything thrown around like the way my kids used to travel. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but. But again, everybody has to kind of use their own judgment on this stuff. I mean, you know, your your people are traveling because they have a passion for, you know, the outdoors and discovery. And, you know, people, you don't want to, like, scare people to the point where they lose the joy of travel because you can get that way. Yeah. I mean, for example, you can read online, people say, put your suitcase in the bathtub. I mean, I never <laughs> do that. I mean, you know, there's a limit to what I'm going to do. Um, now, you know, one other thing, I suppose, if you want to, you could carry a big trash bag, you know, mm-hmm. a plastic trash bag, and put your stuff in that and close that up because, um, you know, that would physically exclude the bugs from getting into your stuff, yeah. which, you know, then could be transported to another location. And that's an approach that some places have taken where they make you put your backpack into a large garbage bag that's sprayed with permethrin or some other bug spray and you have to keep it sealed throughout your stay yeah i mean the spray again the spraying thing is i mean Hmm. there's so much misunderstanding and there's so much anxiety out there about bed bugs and a lot of it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense i mean physically excluding the bugs by putting your stuff into a big garbage bag or a tote you know makes sense but the insecticide spraying is probably not very effective I and mean, we've actually done some studies looking at um will these products keep bed bugs off of a suitcase for example there's a there's a product that they sell online that uh, basically you're supposed to spray your suitcase and it has permethrin in it mm-hmm. it's totally ineffective hmm. it has no no effect at all those bugs will crawl right over it so awesome that that part doesn't make much sense now, i mean obviously you can <laughs> you can ask the proprietor you know if they've had issues with bed bugs i mean they may or may or may not know they may not say yep. um you can obviously get online and read posts about places you know stay away you know we got hammered here uh, you, you know you may still want to stay there but it might kind of make you be a little more vigilant you know it's it's an interesting point because this does come up a lot that people do post when they've been exposed to bed bugs on the camino but it it does seem like they spread very easily that if pilgrims pick up bed bugs in one place it's easy for them to carry the bed bugs to the next place and so it becomes sort of a, a routine inconvenience for a lot of the hostels along the way that they then have to fumigate deal with this and I, I guess what I'm wondering is obviously the the hostels could share some of the blame if they have uh, poor cleaning practices if they if they don't respond well when they're told that bed bugs are in place but is it always the hostel's fault if there's a bed bug infestation or is this is this just the reality when you have people moving day to day from one place of of common um 
of, of shared sleeping quarters to another. Sure, and it could be one of it could be both things. Yeah. Um, certainly, um, you know, very very often establishments, whether it's a hostel or a hotel or wherever, apartment building, you know, has ongoing problems with bed bugs, and they don't address it or they just don't address it properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, bed bugs are tough, you know, and you got to know what you're doing. We, we generally say that, you know, uh, you know, this is a job for professionals, but even, you know, I do a lot of work with the professional pest control industry, and, you know, there's even tremendous variance in terms of the, the skill level and the thoroughness of companies. You know, some really have bring their A game, and others are a little lost on this. Um, you know, and, and it costs money to eradicate these things and sometimes some of these properties you know just won't or don't have the resources to you know to eradicate so it is possible that the place just has chronic problems that they don't get rid of but mm-hmm. that said i mean these these proprietors i mean they're caught between a rock and a hard place you know when it comes to bed bugs and it's very much just like hotels and apartments i mean these bugs you know they don't crawl in from outdoors like you know, spiders or crickets, they, they are transported in on travelers mm-hmm. or people. And, you know, you could have a clean establishment, you know, one day and the next day, boom, you know, some bugs get transported in on, ba- on a backpack or whatever. So, and, and, you know, probably the worst possible or most challenging situation is with, with, you know, these types of places where your listeners sleep because you've got multiple beds in one room, oftentimes, with multiple travelers that are coming in every day, in, out, in, out, in, out. So, you know, there's a, there's a constant possibility that bed bugs could be transported in. Now, I mean, in that kind of a challenging environment, there are things that the, that the hostel can do. I, I have to say one of the most useful things, um, and it's actually something that even if the, if the hostel doesn't do it individual travelers could do it um there are these little plastic dishes about uh oh they're like little saucers you know about four inches or so in diameter Hmm. um there's different types of these things but one commercial brand is called climb up and you can find them online they cost about i don't know three or four dollars a piece but it's basically like a little pitfall trap it's a little plastic dish that is placed under the legs of the bed oh. and as the bed bugs are wandering around uh, on you know on the floor or with on the bed itself they will crawl you know towards these things crawl up the edge and fall into them and they can't get out hmm. so i mean if i was the proprietor of a place that had chronic bed bug problems and we do this sometimes in in uh, for example shelters and mm-hmm. so forth um is we'll put these things under the legs of literally every bed. And the idea is, uh, one, it's a terrific way to early detect problems. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's even more reliable than the visual inspections because sometimes it's really hard to find these bed bugs. And we keep talking about the mattress and the bed, but there's a lot of other places bed bugs can reside Mm -hmm. indoors. Um, It's not just the bed. So these little dishes, you know, serve as an early detection of bed bug presence and if there was you know one underneath every bed in these places i mean that would be and they were sort of checked you know periodically by someone you know that worked there 
probably the single most effective way to catch these problems early wow. and then take take measures. Now, let's say the property doesn't do that. Uh, it, it is, you know, because again, we're trying to think of every possible way that your folks can reduce the chances of getting bit by bed bugs mm-hmm. when traveling. So we talked about check the bed and know what to look for. You know, if they wanted to carry four of these things, they're stackable. Huh. I'd say that four of them are, you know, figure you got four legs of the bed. Uh, we're talking about something that's about four inches wide and maybe about three inches high. So if that would fit into a, you know, into your pack, I mean, you literally could put these things under the four legs of the bed as you travel. Now, okay, so <laughs> what's that going to do? It's got the idea. What we're trying to do is make the bed an island, mm-hmm. a protective zone where bed bugs can't get you. So if you've checked the bed and you know you're pretty confident they're not in the bed, and you also have to look on the frame. If say it's a metal bed frame, uh, I would say you know check the mattress. But if you really want to be super thorough, check the four corners of the frame of the bed. If you don't see anything in those places, then you can kind of say, well, I think my bed's good, and then. You put these little four dishes underneath the legs of the bed. If there's bed bugs that are moving, you know, from mm-hmm. bed to bed or somewhere else in the, in the in the room, they try. You know, if they were to try to crawl up the bed, they'll 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 crawl into these dishes and they can't get out. Hmm. I mean, you know, maybe this is yeah. excessive for most people, but it is you know something to think about. Um, it's a good option. Uh, uh, and then and then I guess the last thing on that to kind of complete the island is. You know, don't have the bed right up against the wall. Mm. In other words, pull pull it away an inch. Yep. You know, to break that that bridge, and then you know, don't let your blankets if you've got blankets. I guess most of your folks have sleeping bags, whatever. But just don't have stuff you know, bridging from the floor up to the bed. Mm-hmm. But now, having said all this, you know, <laughs> this may be this may be what you know certain people will do, but the masses may just say, "I'm not going to do that." But I still would encourage them to do a quick check of the bed. Yep. Okay, last big thing is, sure. let's say that you are exposed. Um, right. So you get bit. Maybe it's in your pack. You don't know. Maybe it's, you know, riding on you. <laughs> what do you right. do? Like, what do you do once you know that you've been exposed to make sure that you right. are not extending right. the problem? Right. Yeah, a good, good uh, wrap-up question. So, um, yeah. Say you wake up in the middle, you know, the next day, and you're itching all over. And, oh my gosh, I think I got bed bugs, and, and they could be in all my stuff. And I want to try to make sure I don't transport these things. First of all, they don't, you know, they, they don't attach to you like a tick or, or you know, <laughs> like head lice. They 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 when they bite you, they then scurry off, you know, to digest their meal, you know, either back to the bed or, or wherever. But you know, you could be transporting bugs in the backpack or um, clothing or whatever. The easiest thing to do is if, you know, somewhere down the trail, you can find a place that has a clothes dryer. Um, the heat, basically, you know, heat will kill these bugs. Um, Temperature-wise, we say about 120 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a good ballpark. And any clothes dryer, I mean, literally, like if, you th- if you're able to do it, you know, if you can throw a backpack, clothing, uh, sleeping bag, blankets, anything like that that can go into a clothes dryer for, you know, as little as, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. The, and, and the best is to do this when it's dry because things heat up much quicker when they're dry rather than, you know, if you want to wash this stuff, that's fine, but it's it's just an additional step that's not really necessary. So, you know, 15 minutes in a clothes dryer, kill everything. 
I've heard that it needs to be at a particular temperature, or can any dryer get it to where it needs to be? You know, I mean, there is variance of of dryers, especially, you know, throughout Europe, but um, most of the clothes dryers, at least the ones that we've evaluated here in the United States, uh, you're going to get in that range of, you know, 130 to 150 degrees or higher pretty darn quickly mm-hmm. um and it's tumbling so i would say you know don't pack it with everything you know you know so, in other words heat has to you know move through things so pack loosely in the clothes dryer um but I, you know when in doubt give it a little longer give it 30 minutes you know if you want but um the heat of the clothes dryer i think regard pretty much across the board should be more than adequate to kill all the life stages if you were to have, you know, bed bugs and maybe they laid a few eggs here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other possibility is if, you know, again, this just depends on the circumstances, but, you know, sometimes we can use outdoor heating if it's, you know, in the summertime and it's really hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, items can be laid out uh, in the sun, opened up. Sometimes that will be sufficient. Um, if you obviously had like a closed vehicle, a car or something, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know if your your people ever have access to things like that. If the vehicle was closed up and it was very hot and it was parked, you know, on pavement somewhere, and you sort of unzipped everything and left it open inside the vehicle, just like we worry about closed vehicles with you know children and things. I mean, usually the temperature in the summertime in those vehicles is getting up to you know, 130, 140, 150, the, the, the killing temperature for pretty much all insects is about 118 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. So we say, you know, say 120. But the key is you got to get that heat to where the bugs are. Mm-hmm. And, and they will die quite quickly at those temperatures. But mm-hmm. anyway, short answer is closed dryer is probably the simplest way. Gotcha. Well, Mike, this has been super helpful. I, I think a lot of people are going to benefit from this. And You've corrected some uh, some misinformation that floats around in pilgrim circles, so um, I'm really appreciative of you making the time to talk with me. I know you have some other material online. Where can people find it? Um, well, there's you know, again, there's gobs and gobs of bedbook stuff online, and <laughs> much of it is good, and, and a lot of it is not so good. Uh, I have an article I wrote um, just called Bedbugs. Uh, you could probably the easiest way to get to it is just to Google, you know, Bedbug University of Kentucky, mm-hmm. um, or you can do Bedbug Mike Potter. Um, but there's an article there, and it, you know, it'll tell you more than you probably care to know about this critter. But towards the end of the article, I've got a, a section that's specifically designed for at-risk groups, including travelers. And mm-hmm. while it's more geared towards hotel travel, I think you know it, you, it's applicable, and you can see the pictures of what to look for and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, it would definitely be one of those things. It shouldn't take long for people to kind of get a little bit of familiarity with some of this stuff, and uh, it'll be one less thing. Hopefully, you know, to worry about when they're on the trail. Awesome. Thank you very much, Mike. Okay, Dave. Take care. So two months in, having returned home, returned from pilgrimage, returned to a very full-time job, What has remained for me of the Camino way of life?
The reality is not too much. The lifestyle at home is radically different from the road. Uh, it's much less healthy. I still walk. I still get in at least six or seven miles per day, and that's helpful. Um, but as the the winter comes ever closer in the Pacific Northwest, preparing for some uh, wet, wet, cold days, and we'll see how, how well those good habits sustain themselves under those conditions. No, I find that the way that I can break through the doldrums of re-entry, of finally really getting back on my feet, is by looking ahead and by planning the next pilgrimage. And so here we go, just a couple months home, and I'm already planning for the future. The next student trip is getting set up, so we'll be taking a group of students back to the Via Francigena next summer, and that's going to be really exciting to do. It's been a few years since we were out there, and the route just continues to develop. Uh, one of the things that's really striking to me as I look ahead is the proliferation of new purpose-built hostels along the way, not exclusively for pilgrims by any means, but certainly beautiful new structures that uh, provide hospitality along the way in really interesting locations. Uh, a new hostel in a former pilgrim uh, lodging attached to the Duomo in Siena, a new hostel at the base of the tower in San Miniato Alto, uh, a new pilgrim village in the camping at San Gimignano made out of a, a bunch of uh, mobile homes that have been uh, linked together. So there continue to be more and more resources set up for walkers uh, along that route. And I'm also finally, after thinking about it for a long time, gearing up to go check out the Kumanokodo in Japan. And uh, so I'll be doing that in the spring. And that is a, a very different experience. You know, you have to book accommodation in advance. There's a travel agency that helps to coordinate a lot of that stuff. The cost is obviously far greater, but I'm looking forward to uh, a very different kind of pilgrimage experience, breaking out of the the more Catholic based traditions uh, that most of the roots are, are built upon in Europe to uh, to a Buddhist-focused one in Japan. So I'm looking forward to that. So my hope is, you know, even if looking back isn't working for me, then maybe looking forward will. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Jen Hoffman for speaking with me about her experience walking back from Finisterre in Santiago. And thanks as well to Mike Potter for talking about bed bugs. I hope that you all got something useful out of that. I found it to be really quite enlightening. As always, you can find us on northerncaminos.com. You can find us on SoundCloud. And really exciting, we're now posting all of the episodes on the Camino Forum. So you can find it there in the, in the forum and uh, interact in a, a way that maybe has, uh, has not been possible before. You can, of course, reach us on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash northerncaminos. So really, you could spend your whole morning finding all of the different places that the podcast is available online. We want you to find it. So 
Um, so I hope that you uh, that you can track it down and enjoy it. And please get in touch if you'd like to be involved. Um, frankly, one of the big delays is um, in putting together new episodes is securing um, interviews with people who have interesting stories to tell. And I think that applies to many of you listening. So get in touch at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to share your story. Thanks very much and talk to you soon.